Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Uh, Our church has a mission statement. And it's on the homepage of our website. If any of you are here for the first time, chances are you saw it on the, on the homepage. You found out where we meet. You see this first. Uh, we exist to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus for our surrounding neighborhoods. And last week I mentioned that I still, every time, you know, I have to say it a lot. I'm a pastor here. Um, every time I think of that, it sounds audacious. It sounds kind of outrageous. Sounds proud. Oh, we're the presence of Jesus. Really? And yet we, we have to say things like this because of, of the New Testament, of the, the scriptures that we have on the right side of our Bible that um, we get from the apostles that say things like, we are the very body of Christ. He's the head. We are the body. That's an organic connection, but it's more than that. It's like it means His life is ours. His life is ours. This is Ephesians 4. It's Colossians 2. It's probably most exhaustively in 1 Corinthians 12. We're his very body. The Apostle Paul also says that the church, and I'm going to keep saying this because I don't think, we we talk about body a lot. If you come to any of our um, New to Liberty classes or you take a class, if you're even interested in becoming a member here, I mean, you go go to all four of them. Uh, we talk about body life because it's, it's not this one abstracted passage. It's everywhere in your New Testaments. But I want to also, I think it gets at something else. The, the very last verse of Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, the church is the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ. And that's why, that's why he says in this section of the Gospel of John before he goes to his death, before his resurrection, of course, Because we are to become the fullness of Christ. That's why he says things like, it's better that I go. Because in the sending of this Holy Spirit, my life will be with you and in my church for all coming generations. In this unprecedented way, in this new way, where you really are living as my body. And we are at the 20th anniversary, as I shared last week, of this relatively small, when you think about the church in Philadelphia... Uh, to say nothing of the church of all times and places, small church planting communion 
called the Liberty Communion of Churches, and this is one church, um, separate church, but we're networked to this other communion that's going about the work of, of planting churches in the Philadelphia region, and uh, the communion just said, listen, 20 years, let's go back to what we're supposed to be doing here. And so this is a sermon series on the vision of this church. A few sermons on living. This is the second one today. Next week we'll move on to speaking. And then we'll spend a few weeks looking at serving as the very presence of Christ. Last week we, we, we dove into John 15 and we talked about this beautiful illustration that keeps, keeps giving that Jesus gave us in John 15. Here's the illustration if you, if you weren't with us and aren't familiar with the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I'm the vine. You're the branches, and you bear fruit. So, a few things you know immediately. Um, we are the branches, you and me. Individual congregations are the branches as well. But all the life is in the vine. So a branch, one person or one congregation, for that matter, doesn't say, I'm, I'm going to go make some fruit. I'm going to go do that. I'm just going to make fruit just spontaneously just burst out of a branch. It's not possible. It's never happened. It never, ever, ever will happen if it's going to be healthy, if it's going to be actual life. He's the vine. We're the branches, though there's more. The father is this vine dresser who's got, like, pruning shears. And if there's stuff that we don't need that's dying, that's not healthy in us, around us, he prunes it off. But it's not just that part. It's also, frustratingly, the healthy stuff that he prunes. This is the science of vine dressing in the art. As I'm sharing with you in a minute, I'm coming to understand more. When you prune back a branch, that branch, it's, it's actually pruned for the sake of bearing more fruit. It's got to draw its life from the vine like never before. It's for the sake of future growth. I was talking to Dustin Ream last week, who in a prior career was a bartender, but I think is also just a hobbyist when it comes to wine. And I, and I got down from the sermon, I would barely come down from here, and D Dustin said, John, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> He's like, did you know, like, like, like his love for, for, for wine like coming out of his eyes. He's like, did you know that like grapevine roots go like 20, 30 feet into the ground? Like you see, like the externals, you see this vine. It's like, okay, great. Underground, it's like so much bigger and deeper and richer. And it goes down and you don't want to overwater. And he just keeps going. I'm like, really, Dustin? Okay, I try to take it all in. Um, you don't want to overwater. You know why? Because that makes the roots go deeper into the groundwater. And that stretching of the vine roots deeper, 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 deeper is actually what makes those grapes pop as their life is required to draw on the life of the vine to bear fruit. And he says all this the night before he dies. You got to know how to find your life in me even though me, who has been your life, you know, for the last three years or so, I'm going away. Expect life like never before. So living is the presence of Christ. I cannot think of a better passage than John 15 to talk about what it means to live. I mean, he is our life. That's the whole metaphor. And we're going to keep going uh, just for one more week because there's more. The verses today start with that vine life. He keeps talking about abiding, 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 John 15, 1 through 17, it's in there 11 times, that same word. It's the driving word, the driving command. Abide in me. It just means remain, dwell. Don't go be a branch on its own. It's never going to work. You're always going to be sorry that you do it. There will be no lasting fruit that comes from it. Abide, 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 remain, just like a branch in the vine. That's where all the good stuff, all the life is. And he goes on. 
in verse 7. And the verses today in verse 7 and following start with promises about what branches can expect as they abide. From this abiding and the pruning, what can a branch expect to happen as it abides in the vine and is pruned? It's actually one of those absolutely outrageous promises of Jesus, which we get not a few times in the New Testament. Listen to how strongly he puts it. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, verse 7, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You branches are supposed to expect that. To ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. And already we don't believe it. You don't believe that. <laughs> there, there's a way in which, let me just say, before I dive into your cynicism and mine, there's a way in which this makes a ton of sense, right? If he's saying there's a vine that you draw your life from in your branch, and the whole point is fruit-bearing, doesn't it make sense that, like, You'd expect fruitful stuff to come as you draw on the life of that vine. He's carrying with the metaphor. But I really don't think you should go home and drop to your knees and start asking for, like, the most amazing Mercedes-Benz, even though you don't have any money in the bank account. I mean, crazier things have happened. Um, what you have to understand, based on the very words of Jesus in this passage, what you have to understand about this outrageous promise, ask whatever you want, and it'll be given, is there is a precondition. What is it? Look back. Verse 7. If, there's a big if. The if matters. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. If our life is his, wouldn't we ask the sorts of things that come flowing out of the life of Christ? Just look at his life. And by the way, if you're, if you're brand new to this, I, I mean, it's a transformative series of chapters to dive into. The Gospel of John, chap, beginning with chapter 13 through 17, it's just almost entirely Jesus talking. More than he talks in any one stretch anywhere else in the New Testament. Starting with when he washes his disciples' feet and ending with Jesus, God, God the Son, speaking to God the Father sometimes about the Holy Spirit. So if you're just wondering about the life of Christ, there's way worse places to go. The expectation is we're going to ask like he asks. There's a condition. But there's also this expected result. And it's not the result that you're going to, man, you're going to have like, you're going to live in the most amazing house in the most amazing mansion in Beverly Hills or in Philadelphia. No. The whole, the whole promise attached to this, the whole result attached to this promise is that you're going to go and bear Jesus-type Jesus fruit in the world. So for the rest of the sermon, I just want to look at these two things. I want to look at the precondition, because a lot of our life in Christ involves this asking. God, give us what we need. Give us what we need. I want to look at this precondition and also the, um, also the, uh, the purpose. What's the asking actually for? So first, the precondition I already said is abide in his love. If you want to ask the way he wants you to ask, and, and by the way, if we're talking about living as the presence of Jesus, it involves a lot of prayer, a lot of talking to God. I want to look at this precondition, abide in me. Uh, 
we've, we've talked about this last week, but as you read this full chapter, it goes from abide in me, he says that a bunch of times, to abide in my words, to really landing with abide in my love. If you want to ask and receive, abide in my love. Let me just ask, why is it so important to be immersed in the love of God when we go asking to extend our lives and to bear fruit? I want to I give you this sentence, which I believe is right out of the scriptures. We have to abide in the love of Jesus because love is the source of all things. Everything that is comes from the love of God. Let me back up a second. Jesus gives us lots of words. He says, abide in my words. He gives us tons of words. But love is at the core of them. And let me just convince you, if you don't believe me for, for a second, maybe your favorite verses of Jesus are about his patience, his mercy, his grace, his wrath, for all I know. The center is his love. The two great commandments. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Many traditions in in the branches all around us, in different parts of the church, say these verses every single week before they confess their sins. Why? Because Jesus says all the law and prophets hang on these. Everything else you read in the old covenant of Scripture hang on the idea that we are for loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. Same Apostle John who wrote this gospel in his very first letter says something remarkable. He says, actually, God is love. Not that God is loving. Of course he's loving. But God is love. You don't, you don't get statements like this very often in our New Testaments about God's patience or grace or mercy or wrath or even holiness. He's not just holy and merciful and gracious and all those things. John says, God is, is love. And in this very narrative, John 13 through 17, it all kind of speeds up at the end on the point of love. The very last verses are, um, God, given the love you and me had, Father, given the love that you, have, you and I have had from the beginning, that they might love one another and abide in our love. It's love, 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 love. Chapter ends, he's arrested. It's all about love. And uh, one of the, the earliest theologians of the church, Irenaeus, Irenaeus of Laon, uh, wrote a book called Against Heresies, and one of the main heresies was a failure to understand love. And he, he gives a beautiful illustration when you lose the centrality of things like this, like God is love, the two great commandments, abide in my love. He, in his day, a lot of people made uh, mosaics out of jewels or tiles or precious stones. And he said, imagine that there's this amazing mosaic of a king. And there's, it's made up of all these jewels just to, to carry his illustration, he says, let's say uh, the jewels are scripture passages, scripture verses, books of the Bible, and they all work together to make a beautiful image of the king. He said, you know what you have to watch out for? We're surrounded by people, surrounded by people who love the jewels, but they rearrange them all into the face of a dog. He said, this isn't once in a while. This is happening all the time. Why do we abide in the love? Why is love being screamed at us? One reason, we don't want to turn the face of the king into the face of a dog. That's one reason. But another reason is, it's so hard to abide in love. It's so hard to live like you are loved. Isn't he like screaming it to us? He just keeps saying abide, abide, abide. Abide. 
and abide and abide and abide. What do you and I do instead? We try to earn love. Did you know that you cannot possibly be trying to earn love and be abiding in love at the same time? They are exactly at odds with one another. It's like Jesus is saying, just sit there and take it. <laughs> just sit there and take it. You know, uh, this, pa uh, this past Thursday, we had a congregational meeting downstairs, and Liz was so nice, and she made, I didn't know it was coming. It happened to be my birthday. I had no idea. She brought all these little cupcakes, and of course, people stand up, and they sing. Well, they didn't stand up. I was standing, and you all started singing, happy birthday, and what did I do? I sat down, because I couldn't take it. And they say, oh, that's humble or whatever. It wasn't humility. It's hard to be stared at in love. Just sit there and take it. I don't know if your parents have read this one yet, but, um, and I've said this before, I think it's been a number of years, but um, one of the great illustrations of this in children's literature is the Velveteen Rabbit, if you're familiar with it. It's the original Toy Story, uh, for, for those of you who are more familiar with Toy Story. It's a story of this stuffed rabbit who comes into a nursery and he's trying to find his way around the room and he sees like some toys are ignored and some you know, have an attitude and he comes across the one, that, the toy that's been in the nursery the longest, it's an old rocking horse. And uh, the rocking horse takes it upon itself to teach, teach some of the toys around it to become real. Not just be a toy, but to be a real living entity. And the horse says to the rabbit, you become real when someone loves you for a really long time. It doesn't happen all at once. By the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, your eyes drop out, and you get shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly. Except to people who don't understand except for people that don't know how to abide in love. Just sit there and take it, Jesus is saying, on the way out to people who he really wants to bear fruit in the world, who he really wants to imitate his life. It all starts with sitting there and taking it. That's the precondition for this unbelievable prayer. It is never... Lord, make me to be a respectable person. <laughs> Abide in his love first, and you'll find out that you're way more loved than you will be when you become somebody's version of respectable. It's the precondition for the prayer promise of verse 7. Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done. You've got to know that you're already loved. But then there's a purpose attached to it. That's the second point. The purpose of this abiding and this asking, there's actually not just one thing. I think there's a main thing. If you look at the text carefully, I think you'll agree with me. But Jesus says there's a lot of reasons why you should abide and then ask whatever you want. One, it will, it will lead to bearing fruit. It'll glorify the Father. You'll prove to be my disciples because you'll bear a lot of fruit and you'll be acting like I do. But what's the main fruit that he gets at? He's actually just repeating himself what he said loud and clear two chapters earlier in John 13. And he's like, read my lips. I'm going to give you a new commandment, which is a, it's kind of Jesus being funny because it's not new at all. Love one another. The main fruit that comes out of abiding in the love of God, of course, of course it is loving one another. One of the things that 
that stinks about the English language. I mean, it just stinks. And some of you Spanish speakers or Greek speakers in here, and, and I'm, I'm too ignorant of a whole lot of other world languages to know just how much you benefit uh, from not uh, being mainly English speakers, is that it is very hard sometimes when you hear the word you to know whether it's in the singular or in the plural. And did you know almost every time this obnoxiously almost repeated word abide is used in verses 1 through 17, it's plural. He's not saying abide, 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 abide. He's saying abide. All of you abide. All of you abide. When he's saying I want you to bear fruit, it's not singular. It's you all go bear fruit. When he's saying love one another, he's not saying Brian, love your neighbor. Claire, love your neighbor. He's saying all of you love one another. What's the significance? It is not possible to think of any part of this illustration in an individual way. I think that's hard, not just for English speakers, but for Americans. Think about this illustration. If the vine and branch illustration holds, you are organically united, not just to the vine, but to every other branch that's united to that vine that is Christ, whether you like it or not, and you don't like it. But that's at the very heart of this passage. The promise of prayer, of bearing fruit, of asking whatever you want and it being granted, of becoming disciples, all of it is intended primarily to be understood in terms of our, get this, our common life together. It is fine to say, Lord, help me. Lord, I need this for my, my life is this, my life. That's good, that's true, that's beautiful. It just has nothing to do with this passage. It's we our common life together. Lord, where are we? What are we becoming? You, my, your life is mine. It's also my brother's. That means, you guessed it, my brother's life is my own. This is not some kind of propaganda out of 60s songs. <laughs> he ain't heavy. He's my brother. Your brother and sister's life is your own. It is unreal how many commentaries I read that miss this. And it's only unreal to me because there are one or two that do and shook me out of not seeing it. It's like the main point outside of our life in Christ is your brother and sister's life is yours. It just is. What does that mean? I don't want to use words totally outside of what Jesus just wants us to sit with, but love one another. Love one another. Jesus gets really specific with what this looks like. Abide in me. Ask whatever you want. This will glorify my Father. You'll bear a lot of fruit. You'll prove to be my disciples. And then you'll love one another. And oh yeah, you know what loving one another looks like, right? Anybody not know what loving one another looks like? He tells us. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. Laying your life down for other branches in this room and in other rooms around the world. That's love. Oh yeah, and the next day Jesus just modeled it for them. The strange thing about this though, Jesus saying, I'm here to lay my life down for my friends. And he says, I call all of you friends. You don't just call me master anymore. You can, I'm still Lord, but you're also my friends. The funny thing is, is that later that night and the next day, most of his friends behave like enemies. And they've already heard Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount say, you know, one of the distinct 
distinctive features of my people is that they will love their enemies. The cross is all about love for enemies. Living as the very presence of Jesus is loving our enemies. It's Groundhog Day in a couple weeks, and my father, who's getting older, and it struck me yesterday because I saw my father, his, his favorite movie is Groundhog Day. And every year, he calls me and leaves voice messages that are lines from the movie Groundhog Day. And um, he also, it's kind of like a cat's in the cradle thing, if you know that song. Uh, he's like, hey, do you want to watch it this year? And I'm usually too busy. Um, but part of it's because he was getting older, and it struck me. This is actually, this, this movie, Groundhog Day, if you don't know, it's actually a, a really interesting picture of the transformative power of love for terrible people. Because <laughs> if you know the movie, Bill, Bill Murray's like the worst person ever. And he's a news reporter, and he has to keep living the same day over and over and over. And he kind of has a crush on this girl, but he doesn't really love her. He just wants her to love him. And he tries to make himself more and more impressive, so she'll, she'll want to sleep with him. And uh, she, of course, can't stand him. And he just ultimately, after living the same day over and over and over and just living out his own roots, basically, just becoming a totally more and more disastrous human being, he despairs and he gives up. And he, he basically stops trying to do anything at all. And that's when she's actually becoming interested in him. And she's, she just decides one day, he's like, you know, I'm living every day the same, right? And she's like, yeah, right. And she just starts spending the day with him. And she just walks around with him and likes him for who he is, even though he's a disaster of a human being, and spends time with him and sees, sees life through his eyes, and that's the day that changes his life. And from then on, he decides to make use of this curse. Anyway, yeah, you know, he starts catching kids falling out of trees and fixing old ladies' cars, and the point of this illustration is not so that you'll all fix tires on old ladies' cars, although you should. You know, We'll get more to that when we get to serving as the very presence of Jesus. The reason I give this illustration is this. Nothing is more transformative than looking bad in the presence of love. Nothing is more transformative than looking helpless in the presence of love. And if you abide in Christ, not because of what you do or what you like, but just that you're loved, it's exactly what will happen. But you know how Christ actually shows you I don't know how many times it's really helped for me just to reach for the feeling of being loved by God. I'll be honest with you. I'm not great at accessing that, just reaching out into the ether and finding out that God loves me. You know how it happens. is by looking bad in the presence of all of you. Which happens all the time. <laughs> and being loved... He loves you for your existence, for your very existence. And we don't treat each other that way. Fruit bearing is offering that to other human beings, even to enemies. That's what I'm trying to say. I love you for your existence, not because you got your opinions straight. I love you for your existence and because of the life of Christ that somehow, you know, as much as your glory is tarnished, I see it in there somewhere. Uh, and I love you for it because he first loved me and he helped me abide in him. When is the last time we loved an enemy, folks? All of these unbelievable promises of Jesus. Ask whatever you want 
and you'll have it, are based on abiding in Jesus, assuming the fact that what we want is what he wants, which is somehow finding the superhuman power to love enemies. That's what the whole promise is for. It's impossible to love an enemy. And it's like the defining characteristic of the church. When's the last time you loved someone who thinks really differently than you do? Someone whose ideas threaten you? Someone whose bad habits on a Saturday night threatens you or your block? Ask for it. Living as the presence of Jesus is, first of all, when you, when you find out that the person that you most dread seeing or the person that you most despise, you're really not better than that at the foot of the cross. And he loves you so much anyway. That's the journey we're on. Ask for it. That's what the promise is for. Beg him for that. This is living as the very presence of Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.